Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Thanks, uh, and good morning. I don't know how many of you would have remembered or even been alive, but uh, in 1988, Seoul, Korea hosted the Olympic Games. And um, I remember it. I remember Flojo, you know, shocked the world with breaking a record. I don't even know if that record still has been broken yet, but um, others, Ben Johnson won, and then there was controversy. But one of the things that as Olympics take place in certain cities and countries and the rest of the world moves on uh, that people forget is the impact in the local community. Because all that it takes to put on such an event uh, requires a lot of building. It it, it puts the country on display. And Korea in particular had just, through a few decades before, undergone, you know, Korean War. And so this was a major showcase and opportunity. And so as a result, uh, the building... Um, industry was booming uh, to build the structures first for the Olympics and then furthermore. But all that came to a screeching halt in 1995. Uh, One of the biggest department stores in the world had been built in Seoul, Korea, called the Sampung Department Store. And tragically, in 95, it collapsed suddenly, killing over 500 people, injuring over 930. It was the worst non-war-related disaster in Korea's history. And so they investigated to figure out how could this happen and why this happened and what they discovered after they prosecuted the owner of the building was he had cut corners. He used cheap materials. He had literally, to, to create more floor space in the department store, so like we're in this room that has pillars right here. He had them knock out the pillars to create more floor space, which made the building unstable and it collapsed. And what that lesson taught Korea, which had previously not had a whole lot of regulations about how buildings were built and things like that, was that how you build matters as much as what you build. Let me say that again. How you build matters as much as what you build. And that's why this series through the book of Romans is so important because it teaches us how to build our faith. Last time I preached uh, the first part of this two-part series within the series um, on deconstructing your faith. And we talked about how deconstruction is, is, is a phrase that you know is happening a lot in this idea of questioning and challenging beliefs that folks have had throughout their lives. What well, a second part of this is we're going to talk about reconstructing your faith. What does it look like and what does it mean to build? Because how you rebuild matters as much. Now, the interesting thing is thinking about, and as we kind of zoom out about the book of Romans, what we see is the whole book is really about deconstruction and reconstruction. Uh, The Apostle Paul is confronting those who 
thought that because, you know, in chapter one and chapter two, he says, oh, don't think because you're, you know, a person of Hebrew descent, a Jew, that because you were given the law, that that makes you more righteous than the Gentiles who didn't have the law. Because if you have the law and you break it, you're just as bad. Then he turns his attention to the Gentiles. It's like, yeah, get him, Paul. And he's like, wait, whoa, whoa. Because you, even though you don't have the law, you know what is right and wrong because God has put his law in your heart and you still don't do it, so you're still wrong too. And all of it come, like culminates in this moment where Paul gives this charge in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I would like us to all read this part together. Do not be conformed to this world. Is it up there? Yeah, like, okay, you ready? Set, go. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, that'll wake you up. You're like, wait, I didn't know we were doing participation today. But this, this, these two verses essentially line out Paul's major point of the entire previous 11 chapters. That's why he says, therefore, I appeal to you. Now, the reality is when we talked about deconstructing your faith last time, we actually focused on the reality of not deconstructing your faith in God or your spiritual beliefs, but deconstructing the secular faith in which we're all kind of baptized in by the nature of simply just living in a secular world. And deconstructing the ideas that we just, that actually end up causing us to ask questions or inform the questions that we have about our faith. We all face the active temptation to replace faith in God with faith in the world or faith in ourselves. And so we talked about how deconstruct and deconstruction, how the world is shaping us. This is why Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. There's a pattern in which is already existing and wanting to conform us in. And you know, one of the main aspects of this pattern is that the nature of secular faith is to tempt you to worship at the altar of yourself. As we wrap up the series, we're going to focus on five steps of deconstructing and reconstructing your faith. Because life is really all about deconstructing and reconstructing, as we'll see. And so today, we're going to look at what to tear down and what to build on. Are you all right with me? Now, now I will give a little bit of caution. This is a bit heady. I know it's in the morning, so I'm going to need you to kind of, kind of do what you need to do to stay, stay with me because this isn't like a, a rah-rah message, right? Like this is kind of going to, but he said that we need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. So can y'all, can y'all do that with me? Can y'all hang with me today? All right, all right. I'm going I'm to keep it moving. So here we go. Step one, deconstruct total self-reliance to reconstruct God-reliance. Deconstructs total self-reliance to reconstruct God-reliance. See, Romans as a book is known for making it clear that we are made right with God, or uses the phrase, the word justified, not by what we do, but by our faith. Now, Paul confronts a major premise of Roman society when he says this. 
And it's a premise that is still governing our society as well in terms of how people think about themselves, which is that we live in, or at least what we like to fashion as a meritocracy. And in a meritocracy, the idea is that what you accomplish is based on what you do, your effort, your abilities. Now, I know there's a whole lot we can say about that, but at least that's what we like to think. And in many cases, it's more true than in other countries. And so we look at ourselves as a meritocracy. But if we're not careful, that principle and that idea, which there's some great merits to, causes us to look at how we see ourselves based on what we do based on how many followers we have, based on what kind of impact we have in society, and even based on our ability spiritually to stay on the right path. But God says the exact opposite thing. He says, your works don't define your worth. You notice how we, when we meet somebody new, like this is how you can see in our country, like our culture, our mindset. Right after your name, what do you ask? What do you do? That's just a tendency, and we don't even think anything of it because it's so natural and it's so, you know, and, and, and here's the danger, that this is so deep that even, when, even though Romans tells us that we're not justified by what we do but by what we believe by our faith, we then take pride in the fact that we have faith <laughs> as, like, as if that's something to boast about. And the danger with that is is that then we judge those who question their faith or who lack faith. And this tendency in the church to shun those who doubt is a major problem because not only does it alienate those who are struggling with their faith, it also short circuits our own ability to deal with our own doubts. We don't know what to do with it. And that's why it's so important that Paul starts this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. See, the mercies of God is the good news of this. The mercies of God says, even when you fall short, right? Even when he says in Romans 6 or Romans 7, where he's like, look, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And that which I don't want to do, that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ who saves me. Because he recognizes not by what I do. It's the mercies of God. It's a God reliance, not a self reliance that allows us to even enter into this thing. But that takes deconstructing my faith in myself and reconstructing my faith in God. To get to the place where I can just acknowledge and embrace, I'm not all that. And that's okay. Because he's all that. And he said, I'm okay. And that makes all the difference. You see, reconstructing our faith makes room for questioning it. Look at how Jesus responds to those who are deconstructing that sense of self-reliance. We're told in the Gospel of Mark, this is a great encounter of a man whose son was very sick. And he sought for years to try to get his son help. And any of us who've had a child who is sick and, you know, a baby that's crying throughout the night or just, you know, a child who has some type of, you know, significant disease, you're willing to do anything. There's a desperation and an angst to try to do anything to try to make this child better. And, and so the child hears, I mean, this father hears about these disciples and, of Jesus and that they're doing these amazing things. And so he goes to them and they can't help him. And so Jesus comes into the scene and he says, look, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, please help my son. He's desperate. And Jesus responds, if I can. If? That's interesting. All things are possible for those who believe. And the father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
I believe, but help my unbelief. You see, his experiences, his years of angst and turmoil and heartbreak and heartache over seeing his son just suffering caused there to be a bit of doubt. But look at how Jesus responds. He doesn't doesn't rebuke him. He heals the man, son, restores him. And shows him that that faith that he had, even though it had unbelief mixed in it, was enough to get him to act. You ever been there? I believe, but help my unbelief. I've been there. Been there recently? I believe, but help my unbelief. We must learn that not only should we doubt our doubt or doubt our faith, but we should also doubt our doubts. Not only should we doubt our faith but we should have doubt our doubts. You see, Jesus allowed the man to doubt his doubt when he said, if I, if, like he put, wait, so you have some doubt about my ability. He had just come from the Mount of Configuration, Transfiguration where he was transformed. And, but the man hadn't seen that. That's what it looks like to reconstruct God reliance. Because here, look, and it's okay because the gospel is not only a mystery that has been revealed, but also a prophecy that has been fulfilled. You see, God called out what he was going to do ahead of time. That's why we have all these Old Testament scriptures that we look into and, and that prophesy about a Messiah who was going to come and take away the sins of the world. And that can give us more hope and confidence in the fact that if God did it before, he can do it again. Deconstruct self-reliance to reconstruct God-reliance. Okay, step two. Deconstruct religion to reconstruct a relationship with God. There's a, uh, what's called, known as a paraphrase uh, version of the Bible called The Message. It's written, uh, it was translated by a pastor and Greek and Hebrew scholar named Eugene Peterson some years ago. And um, my favorite passage in that entire uh, translation, that entire paraphrase is Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. This is his version of, of a verse that might sound familiar if you've ever heard, come all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. This is how he kind of translates it into our common vernacular. Are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me, Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Leave the, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I love that. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Isn't that beautiful? And that is what, Jesus offers us, and notice in that there wasn't anything about, okay, and this is all about the rules, and this is all about the regulations, and this is all about looking how you look at other people. No, he says, are you tired and burnt out of religion? Come to me. You see, religion, as I'm defining, is this kind of just set of rules to follow, a way to act in front of community and pretend that you're something when you're not, and it's tiring, it's exhausting, to live that way. And fortunately, Jesus criticizes the religious leaders of his day for, in his words, laying heavy burdens on the people because of their emphasis on religious practice. Now, if it sounds weird to hear a pastor talking about the dangers of religion, well, I'm only just repeating what Jesus said. 
You see, in Matthew 23, 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and forgiveness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. This is mind-blowing. Jesus is saying right here, look, when he says tithing, dill, cumin, it meant, it meant that they're, they're, they, they were so fastidious, so meticulous in their, uh, in their obedience to the tithe that they were, even if they had a garden, they would take 10% of the, the, the plants that they were, uh, had grown and offer that to, the, to God. And he's like, man, you do all of that, but you neglect the weightier matters, justice and mercy and forgiveness. So he even makes a distinction and say, look, you should have done all of it, but especially not neglected the main things. And for several centuries, this is what uh, typified Christianity. And then what happens around the fourth century is uh, this emperor named Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of Rome. There's a lot of speculation about why he did that, but in doing so, he co-opted a movement and made it a monument in the empire. And so from that state on, from that point on, this idea of the church and this being part of the state and this aspect of, of, of using might to, uh, to exert spirituality and these religious structures and systems all get developed. And so many of us are weary. We're weary of church-sponsored colonialism. We're weary of white Christian nationalism. We're weary of these things that we see that are reflections not of the gospel, but are of structures that existed that were not intentionally part of the plan. We're tired. So many people are looking at us in a row and they go, what does this have to do with the gospel? And they're right, it doesn't. But you know what also doesn't make sense? Rejecting the relationship with God because of the religious practices. That would be like one time I got a, I went to a store and I got a, um, <laughs> I was going to pay for something. I gave them a 20 and they, were, and they looked at it and they were, oh no, this is a counterfeit 20. We can't accept this. And I was like, really? Wow. Couldn't remember where exactly I got it from, but I just knew I couldn't use it. And what, what a lot of people do now is then they say, you know what? I'm not using money anymore <laughs> because I got one counterfeit or I got exposed to something that didn't have worth. That's what we do when we reject God because we saw counterfeit religion. We have to deconstruct the counterfeit in order to see the real. Deconstruct viewing church as a building. Reconstruct the vision of church as a people. Deconstruct the church's history past and, and, and the ways in which things were distorted and looking at those things honestly, but also reconstructing church's future and its calling and saying, hey, this is what God calls us to now. And when we do those things, we understand that this is always about relationship. I can't speak for what some emperor did or what some, you know, pope did or some religious leader did. All I can speak to is where do I stand with my God? But there's also another piece of this, and that leads us to step number three. We deconstruct individualistic independence to reconstruct interdependence. I'm trying to help y'all. We deconstruct individualistic independence to reconstruct interdependence. What do I mean by that? Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says that let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is promised is faithful. 
And let us continue how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habits of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, in the time that this author is writing to uh, his audience that they're being pressured, that there's, they're experiencing persecution, there's difficulties in the land. The land is experiencing all sorts of turmoil and all sorts of, of problems. And so he's saying, and so as a result of that, some just found it better to just not gather anymore, not be associated with the church, not be associated with all the things that were being slandered and, and talked about. And just, it was just a lot going on, a calamity. And so folks just started to move away. And it is true that people say, yo, I can have my relationship with God without, you know, the church. And, that, and that's true. One can have a relationship with God without coming and assembling together. But we also, it also is true that we need to gather together. Look at the verbs. Stir up one another. Meet together. Encourage one another. There's, there's something that happens when we gather together, right? There's something that happens when, when, when you hear the song and you didn't come in feeling like you wanted to sing anything, but then you heard those lyrics and you heard those instruments and you, and you, heard, and you were reflected and you were reminded of something and the spirit allows the faith of somebody else to reach out and elevate yours and that can't happen when I'm by myself. There's something that happens when I have a blind spot and there's, there's some issues that I, that I don't see it or that I've started to justify and, and rationalize in my mind and then somebody else says, yo, you, you know, I don't think that's what the Lord has for you, sis. The, the, Ecclesiastes says it this way. If one fo- walks and falls down, he's, he's alone in a ditch, but if two walk together, somebody can pull up the other person. And that only can happen when we are together. You know, we are living in a time in this pandemic where it's never been more disruptive and more difficult and challenging to come together. And many have experienced an increased isolation. And this has accelerated deconstruction. That's why it's not a surprise that in this time where we've been more separated, that folks start going on to YouTube and start seeing this and going down this rabbit hole and that rabbit hole and starting to wonder about things because we were never meant to be apart forever. Now, I'm not trying to say that there aren't seasons and times where because of health reasons or whatever, we need to figure that out, but that's why we need to leverage all the technology, all the, but, and then also I need to just say this, right? Because I feel like sometimes people have a higher threshold of like, what it means to gather for worship purposes than when they want to go see their favorite movie. Or like, yo. So, I mean, sometimes I'm just saying we need to check ourselves sometimes, right? Like, wait, wait, let's just make sure we got the same levels, uh, like that same energy that we have when he's like, yo, I really want to go and hang out with this person. We keep that same energy with the church. Amen. I, I'm just trying to preach the word. Though. That's all I'm trying to do. But if you notice, most of the scripture is written to communities. Not individuals. <laughs> and it's because we're supposed to do this thing together. So we are need to deconstruct individuality and independence to get to interdependence. And interdependence doesn't mean that I don't have the ability to make choices on my own. It just means that I recognize the mutuality that we have as believers. When you don't have that accountability... You start to struggle. But one of the reasons why some folks do feel uncomfortable with that level of accountability is because they've been demonized in their doubts. They have shared vulnerability with something that they were going through. 
and it was met with judgment. And so we need to, instead of demonizing doubt in others, offer grace and space. That's why our mission as a church is to reach people where they are, not judge them for where they are, but reach people where they are and help them grow. Amen? Man, I feel like it got a little tight up in here. I'm going to keep it moving. Step four, deconstruct Christless philosophies to reconstruct a Christ-centered worldview. What do I mean by Christless philosophies? Um, And so I'm drawing on all these themes that we see from Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? When he says, don't be conformed to the pattern, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And we said like last time that it's possible for your mind to be renewed, for you to be born again, but you not be transformed by it because you haven't really critiqued all the things that you had assumed to go into it. And look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. They say in sports, and I'm proud of myself for making it this far without a sports analogy. Amen, thank you. That the best... (laughs) Defense is a good offense. And so it's not enough just to be defensive about what it is, I think. But what Paul is saying is that look at the, 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 the like aggressive language he uses here, reward language. We don't wage war against the flesh. And that means like the natural world, the way that we, the, the way that things are, right? That natural mindset, that secular mindset. But he says, but the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they do have divine power to demolish strongholds. Stronghold is another military term. It has to do with a military, a fortified military base. Stronghold. Think like Jericho, right? Think like when people come together and it's just like behind some big walled, you know, fortress. And he says that our weapons are able to demolish the strongholds, but then the question is, well, what are the strongholds? And that's kind of the challenging thing about this in the spiritual, because we can't even see the strongholds. Usually that's a ridiculous question when you're in war, because you see it, it's right there. It's a big wall, and you just go, boom, that's a stronghold. And that's why in deconstructing your faith, I was trying to help us to see that we have these strongholds of doubt, of suspicion about spirituality in general, about institutionalized. Church is the one thing where people are like, well, I just don't like organized religion. And I'm like, so you like disorganized better? Usually organization is a good thing. Like, I like education. I just don't like organized education. I like banking systems, but I don't like them organized, though. <laughs> like, <laughs> but what, you know, so there's these, these systems and there's beliefs like, the, you know, this idea that people are innately good. Ever heard that one? And while the scriptures teach that we are made in the image of God and so that we have good in us, we also are taught that because of the corruption of humanity, of sin, that because of the rebellion, that there's all nature. As a matter of fact, Paul says that we make up ways to do evil. Like there's new stuff that existed that didn't exist 50 years ago. And if anybody got a text message or a phone, say, hey, we're trying to renew your car warranty. I ain't got a car. You're lying. We invent ways to do evil. And so, but this idea of evil and even an evil one is even just rejected. That's a stronghold. And, I, and just to be clear, because there's a lot of talk in some sectors about evil as a way to almost be like, well, lift up your hands and we shouldn't do anything because when people get murdered in, high, in schools, because there's evil. No, 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 no. The 
strongholds that Paul is saying right here are both individual and they're systemic. There's the legal system that is also embedded in strongholds. Anybody who's understood the history of slavery, that was not just individuals being bad. That was a legal system that justified the behavior. And that was needs to get challenged too. That wasn't in the notes. Amen. But we're just going to keep moving because this is... It's, these are strongholds that need to be challenged, and, and we need to reconstruct a Christ-centered philosophy and a worldview because it matters. You know, I, I learned this, <laughs> the, the spiritual war dynamic. So I, I had a Muslim background. That's where my name, Rasul, comes from. It's Arabic. And so from the time I came to faith when I was in high school, I had a particular, I think, burden to understand and be able to communicate with those from that kind of background. And I had a neighbor who told me, a next door neighbor, so I was young in my faith, I'm like 18, and he was like, well, you know, the Bible teaches that, um, or Jesus said that Muhammad was going to come as a prophet. And I was like, hmm. He said, he said yeah, he, you know, he said that there's going to be a comforter that's coming, and that's Muhammad. And I was like, don't think that's what that means. But I didn't have any answer, so I went back and I read uh, the verse, and I was like, I got greater understanding. A few weeks later, I go to, uh, my church was having a Christmas pageant, and one of the kids in the pageant, her father, you know, was this Muslim, I mean, had this regal, just Islamic garb on. So I go up to him just because I'm drawn to connect, making that connection, and it turns out, he says, yes, I used to go to, I went to seminaries, Christian seminaries before, and I went to Islamic seminaries, and I was like, uh-oh, I don't know what I'm going to be able to say to this man. And he says, you know, in fact, the Bible, Jesus talks about the comforter coming and it's, you know, Muhammad. Now, this was a few weeks later. So I pull out my Bible to John 14. And I said, oh, you mean here when it says the comforter who is the Holy Spirit will come and lead you into all truth? My understanding of spirits is that they're non-physical beings. So that couldn't be referring to a person. He turned and looked at me. And was like, so what you trying to say? I'm just, like, I'm just asking questions, you know, in the church. But here's the point. Like, there are challenges that are coming to our faith all the time. Are you equipped? Do you understand how to respond? We need that in order to develop a Christ-centered view because others are going to undermine that all the time. Jesus' whole ministry is about deconstruction and reconstruction. In Matthew 5, he gives the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in not abolishing, but fulfilling, he does something very unique. He says, you've been taught, you've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. I say to you that the one who lusts after a woman in his own heart has already committed adultery. Whoa deconstruction. And his point in doing that is saying, so don't feel like you've obeyed the law and you can kind of puff your chest out like you're righteous before me, because guess what? If that's the standard, y'all fall short. He ultimately deconstructs the biggest issue between God and humanity of sin by constructing a bridge between us through the cross. In that moment, he says, I'm going to tear down this barrier, tear down this wall that separates you from each other and you from me. And I'm going to build a bridge across it. And it cost him his life. 
And so he allows us to do this last and most important step. Deconstruct yourself so Christ can be reconstructed in you. Deconstruct yourself. What I mean by that is we often don't ask ourselves, well, what is causing this deconstruction to happen in the first place? What is triggering these doubts? What happened? And I started to examine this because I had a a friend of mine, um, a few things happened, but a a friend who was really a mentor to me spiritually uh, recently just renounced his faith and it it really shook me. Um, In addition to just the way of the world, the things that, you know, we were just praying about, just all of it coming down. It was just so intense. And I I was sitting there and I was like, why is this bothering? Like, why am I wrestling? And through the Lord, he said, the issue of rejection. Actually, the issue is that you take it personally. Like, you feel like them rejecting me is them rejecting you. And because rejection is this thing that's a tender spot in my own life going all the way back to my childhood, that is why it kind of rattled me to this core, because I felt personally rejected. Didn't have anything to do with, like, the accuracy of the text or what I believe. It was actually something much deeper, much more core to that. And this is what God reminded me in Luke 10, 16. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. This is Jesus talking. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. And so the point there, and this is part of what I mean by doubting your doubts, is that we have to get to a place where we actually start to wonder, like, deconstruct, like, me. Like, what's going on so that I can see where Christ needs to shine his light in my doubts, in my struggles, so I can actually reconstruct something much deeper. And once I realized that, that it was rejection, then it was like God was just flooding the gates with his own truth of his acceptance of me. You are chosen. You are accepted. You are forgiven. This has nothing to do with you, someone else's struggle. I mean, yeah, pray for them. Yeah, intercede, but, but don't take it personal. And here's the point with all that. We are all under construction. I don't, it may not be a rejection for you. It may be something else. But we are all under construction. And that deconstruction starts with stagnation. We just kind of stop being involved, stop spiritual practices. But reconstruction starts with rededication. So here's a couple basic things as I wrap up. To even in the midst of doubt, even in the midst of hard times and discouragement, continue nurturing your spiritual life. Create gospel memories. Oh, former pastor, I used to have called them uh, faith file. Like just write down when you, when you remember God doing something significant in your life. Write it down. Remember because we're prone to forget. You know the greatest commandment, the most repeated commandment we see in Scripture is remember. Because we just have bad memories. Beware of the idol of experiences and emotions. It's important to be aware of our emotions, to sit with them. But oftentimes people are just like, if I feel it, then it must be true. And especially in a season where we are experiencing so much turmoil, that is a recipe for disaster for determining reality. Come back to church. If you don't gather regularly, find a way to gather with people because we need each other. The last chapter, it's amazing. You just go and look at Romans 16. It's uh, Paul just saying, greet 
you know, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, greet Phoebe, greet this person who did this for me. This person is just like a shout out of this long list of people who would minister to him. And he ends with this doxology that I would want to bless us all with. And then I'll have us. As a matter of fact, would you stand with me now? I just want to say this over your lives as we reconstruct our faith together. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And as we're standing, I just want to give you an opportunity. You might be here in in a process of deconstruction and reconstructing. And you realize, man, I need to get back into building. Well, this is a great opportunity. Because even when things happen that cause your building to collapse, that's not the end of the story. I was just in San Francisco a couple weeks ago, and I was just struck by the beauty of the city and the buildings, and then learning about the earthquake in 1906, which leveled it to the ground. But now they're able to build again because they learned how to keep their building structurally sound, even in the midst of an earthquake. And that's what reconstruction can do for us. Keep us sound, even in the midst of life's tectonic plates shifting under our feet. And so I want us to just, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here and you sense that need to reconstruct faith, I'm not going to ask anybody to come up, but just slip up your hand. I just want to pray over you and just say, yeah, I'm, I'm there. I need to rebuild. I need to strengthen the pillars and the fortify the walls. I see those hands. Praise God. Lord in heaven, we come before you recognizing that some walls have come down. Some earthquakes have happened in our lives over the last few years that have shaken us to the foundation. And yet, God, you invite us to rebuild. Rebuild God-reliance where there was self-reliance. That's something that needed to be shaken up in any way. To rebuild interdependence with your body when there was only independence on ourselves. To rebuild relationship when there was a focus on religion. To rebuild with Christ as the cornerstone the only thing that holds up and props up the building, the author and finisher of our faith. God, would you even use this moment to help us to build another brick in that wall? And we would be so careful to give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets 
is at BridgeChurchNYC. Our website is BridgeChurchNYC.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.